millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following program contains adult content and sexual themes. Viewer discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're gonna go die and go to hell. At least I'm not alone. Time for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. We're pretty one work. Lots of road. What's the problem? Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh, we're male car with his hands for a coffee table with this and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, who would, who's, who's life would be. I harm someone each time I. Kill someone to be an enormous amount, uh, especially at first. Uh, enormous amount of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hello there, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia and indeed around the globe. What will you be covering this week, Barney? Well, Tara, I'm going to talk about a 2010 burglary of a house that set off a chain of events that led to the kidnapping and torture death of an innocent man in Wollongong. Holy shitballs. I know, Wollongong, hey? Yeah, Yeah, that's the surprising part of it. What about you, Tara? What have you got for us? Vile goblins Gemma Lilly and her housemate Trudy Lennon had a selfish and stupid plan to make history as serial killers. Their first and only victim was Aaron Payich, a trusting 18-year-old computer game enthusiast with Asperger's syndrome who was friends with Trudy's son. Ooh, intriguing. Yeah, yeah, those two. Oh, pieces of work, I've got to say. Cool. All righty. Um, so this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Hey, baby, let's get murdery. All right. So I have a bit of a head cold, and hopefully that's not too obvious to everyone. Snot. Snot. Hopefully it's snot. <laughs> See, that was a double meaning there. Oh that's my probably God. my best work. Snot. Yeah, we peaked early. No, it wasn't trying. <laughs> wow, Barney. Just Wow. Gemma Lilly moved to Perth, Australia from Stanford in the UK in 2010 when she was 18 years old. She'd had a troubled childhood due to a mother who physically and psychologically abused her. So when her parents divorced, Gemma went to live with her father. She was a talented pianist and studied art and computer game design at college. In her early teens, she developed a fascination with horror movies, murder and serial killers. Just like the rest of us, I guess. Just like the rest of us. 
Unlike most of us, she idolised Freddy Krueger from A Nightmare on Elm Street and looked to him as a hero. Well, he did kill Johnny Depp, and I, I guess that counts for something. Yeah, that's kind of good. Settling in the northern suburbs of Perth, Gemma put her artistic abilities to use as a tattoo artist for a couple of years. When her visa was about to run out in 2012, she found someone to help her stay in Australia, a gay friend called Gordon, who she married to get a partner visa. Like that film Green Card with the sexy Gerard Depardieu. It was just like that, only more romantic. Ooh. Okay, you guys, this is, this is my favourite, <laughs> possibly favourite thing ever. Apparently, Gordon bore such a strong resemblance to serial killer John Wayne Gacy that none of his friends even called him Gordon. They all just called him Gacy. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. That's, that's a bit unfair <laughs> and unkind. I think he was into it. Look, I'm oh. not sure if he dressed up as a clown and growled menacingly at handcuffed young men, but I hope not. Oh, I hope not too. Yeah. When Gemma and Gacy got married, they had a Freddy Krueger-themed wedding. And it wasn't like an awesome, detailed cosplay situation. Like a Shrek wedding. Yeah, and it wasn't good like a Shrek wedding. It was a sad, wear a striped red and green jumper and a not-exactly-right hat kind of wedding. Yeah, it's a bit lame, was it? Totally. Gordon later took his own life. My research did not reveal if the two things were connected. In 2014, Gemma wrote a letter to Robert Englund, the actor who played Freddy Krueger. It said in part, Dearest Robert, I'm a huge fan of yours. As strange as it may sound, I've always seen Freddy as a father figure, Papa Freddy, almost my guardian angel. I've seen the note, and this chick prick ain't winning any awards for her penmanship. Her handwriting looks like the scratchings of the feet of a rat dipped in ink who is having an epileptic seizure, but messier. And don't get me started on the sentiment. I mean, seriously. I said, don't get me started. Oh, can you tell me more about the sentiment? (laughs) I said, don't get me started. Oh, oh, right, right, right. A gate leading to the yard of her house in Aurelia had a sign that she'd made that said Elm Street on it, even though this was not the name of her street. Well, I hope the pizza goes to the wrong address. Yeah, me too. She also had a tattoo of Freddy Krueger on her leg. Now, at this point, even Freddy Krueger is all like, leave me the fuck out of this evil shit show. Gemma had self-published a shitty online novel that had a serial killer theme and a central character known as SOS, which is highly unoriginal as SOS is already short for Son of Sam. I mean, come on, use your imagination to come up with something original, you goblin amateur. If she needed inspiration, she could have just read Barney's erotic Minecraft fan fiction like a normal person. Well, thank you for recognising that. Well, it's very tantalising. It is. It really is. I mean, you just can't put it down. Gemma ended up getting a job as a supervisor at a Woolworths supermarket, which allowed her to get financing to buy a house. She was a regular customer at a video store in Girraween, managed by Angela McGibbon. Angela said that around mid-2013, the two had a conversation where 24-year-old Gemma told her she wanted to kill someone and she wanted to do it before she was 25. Life goals. Gemma told her the feeling she had was getting stronger and waxed lyrical about going on a slaughter fest. Unless she's talking about binge listening to the British podcast. She's clearly got something wrong with her. I like that one. Yeah, yeah, it's a great one. It's a good one. 
Angela said she replied by saying, it's pretty hard to get rid of or hide a body. And Gemma said, there were a number of ways of doing it. Predictably, Gemma loved the TV show Dexter and mostly rented DVDs about horror and serial killing. Her video store account was in the name SOS. She also had SOS tattooed on her arm. Angela said that she did not tell anyone about the conversation until after seeing the case in the news, as she thought Gemma was just an attention-seeking goblin. I think she's right. Yeah, I mean, it'd be an easy enough thing to assume. Gemma's homosexual husband Gacy's best friend was Kim Taylor, with whom Gemma had some sexual encounters, even though she claimed to have no interest in sex. In 2016, Kim introduced her to Trudy Lennon, and the pair became unlikely BFFs very quickly. Gemma, with her blue and green streaked hair and black clothing, and Trudy, the obese, frumpy suburban mother of two. Sounds like a perfect match. Yeah, there's a sex tape I'm not watching. Trudy was a submissive in Perth's BDSM scene. She dabbled in punishment and blood play and had been engaged to her dominant partner. She had a brand of ownership tattoo on her thigh to honour that relationship. Nothing says honour like a brand, right? Well, you've got uh, Barney's podcast co-host written on your butt, haven't you? (laughs) What? I don't know. Frumpy Trudy went by the name Corvina in the BDSM community. That was the name of my first car, a Datsun Corvina. <laughs> sounds like a car, doesn't it? Corvina was like her fantasy self. She liked to imagine herself as Corvina the submissive in thigh-high boots and sexy PVC outfits, even though she was mostly just wearing, like, really unflattering tracky dacks. <laughs> sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Are you as turned on as I am right now? No. Yeah, well, then you are, because I'm not at all. Yeah. Oh, damn you. (laughs) It was a trap. It was. Admiral Akbar was right. Trudy had a hard time financially after her engagement ended. When Gemma visited Trudy's place in May 2016 and saw what an appalling state it was in, she offered for Trudy and her two boys to move into her place. Trudy agreed, even though her sons found the interior design quite creepy. It consisted of lots of horror movie posters and figurines, including a Chucky doll from the movie Child's Play. Because of course it did. Well, I've got a ventriloquist dummy that's pretty creepy, but I have to keep it in the cupboard now. Well, yeah. People complain about Mortimer Schnurd. Terrifying. Seriously. I um, actually, yeah, I I picked it up once and I was so worried it was going to bite my boob. Like I really thought it was going to. (laughs) It's just something about it. It's definitely haunted. Although it's reported that the women were not in a sexual relationship, they did easily fall into certain roles, with Trudy being submissive and Gemma being dominant. Trudy even let Gemma brand her with an SOS tattoo. They also began sharing homicidal fantasies in conversations and in online messages using the pseudonyms SOS and Corvina, in which Trudy doted obediently on Gemma. Their message exchanges intensified quickly, and within three weeks of living together, a bizarre plan had been hatched. Ooh, a bizarre plan had been hatched. Like an egg of murderous shit. Pretty much. God, you have such an amazing way with words, I've got to say. Balls, the size of really big balls. That's that's it, Mr Shakespeare. (laughs) 
13 days before the murder, each declared themselves ready to kill. In an online exchange, Gemma wrote, I feel as though I cannot rest until the blood or flesh of a screaming victim is gushing out and pooling on the floor. I cannot shift this belief that the world has become not only ready for me, but it needs me to be ready. <laughs> Trudy replied, it's definitely time. I'm ready and you're ready. They should start with themselves. They should always. Kill spree people should always start with themselves. Yeah, yeah. Killing sprees begin in the mirror. Mm. Yeah? Good yeah. way to look at it, I think. And then after that, then then kill the other people when you're dead already. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's um that's a really good anti suicide uh, advert you've got going there. Well, look <laughs> obviously we're not really into people killing themselves, but I do think it's preferable to going on a murder spree. Don't I do you? I do agree. I mean come on. Yes, indeed. Also, I reckon by the end of this, she'll be all right with it (laughs) about this woman, these women. Indubitably. It was Trudy who identified Aaron Payich as a possible victim. Aaron was 18, loved computer games, and had a childlike innocence due to his Asperger's syndrome. His former teacher, Megan Wayasa, said, As I had a big heart and a loving, trusting nature with a lot of love to give, he was joyful, helpful, and always had a smile on his face. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Azza. They called him Azza. Azza. Everyone's best friend was another way he was described because he was just like super smiley and friendly. It's true. If you look at any pictures of him, that big smile, I don't know if I'll ever get it out of my mind or if I even want to. Trudy met Aaron while they studied at a vocational college and he became friends with her 14-year-old son. In the weeks before the murder, Gemma and Trudy shopped at a hardware store on three separate occasions to buy murder supplies, including a circular saw, bleach, cement, a drop sheet, a large plastic barrel and some acetone. The day before Aaron was killed, they bought 100 litres of hydrochloric acid from three different stores in Perth. Monday, June 13th, 2016, had started as a pretty normal morning for Adrian Reed, who was still adjusting to having her young lodger around, but enjoying his company. Aaron had moved in with her around two months earlier, on Anzac Day, after meeting each other at her local church. They were eating breakfast together when Aaron's phone rang. He told Adrian it was his friend's mother Trudy calling. Adrian said, "'His whole face changed when he said, "'My friend.'" He was sure if he went to this woman, he would get to see his friend. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, yeah. Knowing what I know about what happens, that actually makes me feel like a horse is like double, double kicked me in the nuts, man. Hmm. She could hear the woman offering to come and pick up Aaron, but instead she said that she'd drop him off at the Rockingham Shopping Centre. And that's where she left him just before 10 a.m. CCTV caught Gemma and Trudy meeting Aaron in the car park and driving him away. Aaron thought he'd be swapping computer games with Trudy's son as he walked towards the house past the Elm Street sign on the gate. Once inside the lounge room, Gemma jumped unsuspecting Aaron from behind and tried to garrote him, managing to do some damage to his throat before the garrote snapped. Then Trudy pinned slightly built Aaron, who only weighed like 50 kilos or just over 100 pounds. Yeah. Um, and she's not a small person. She pinned him on the floor as Gemma stabbed him three times, twice in the neck and once in the chest. 
The women moved Aaron's body to a specially prepared concealed room with a white tiled floor and walls lined with blue tarpaulins. They kept Aaron's body hidden in the room while they decided how to dispose of his remains. They ditched their plan to dissolve Aaron's body in acid and instead buried him in a shallow grave in their backyard. Aaron's friend, Trudy's 14-year-old son, later unknowingly helped cover his friend's grave with concrete and red tiles after the murder. Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. Sick fucks. Meanwhile, Aaron's flatmate, Adrian, was getting worried about him as he had not come home from his trip. She'd called him several times, but his phone was going to voicemail. She looked in all of his favourite places, the college, the park, gaming arcades and his dad's house, but she couldn't find him anywhere and nobody knew where he was. By Wednesday, when she hadn't seen him for two days, she went to the police and reported Aaron missing. By Friday, police appealed for public help and delved deeper, checking his phone records. Forensic analysis of the call log for Aaron's number revealed the last call he'd received came from Trudy Lennon on the Monday morning, and that led them to the door of Gemma's property. As Gemma and Trudy arrived home on the night of June 20th, the police were waiting for them. Gemma tried to get on her bike, like she literally tried to escape on one of her motorbikes, but detectives stopped her and asked to have a look around her house. A search of the property revealed dozens of knives, scalpels, a machete and a notebook, which contained five handwritten pages of alphabetized torture methods, such as branding, castration, Chinese water torture, foot roasting, genital mutilation, force feeding and knee capping. It's like Satan's shopping list. They also found another handwritten list of what police described as items to torture, kill, conceal and clean. Objects on the list included a chest retractor, an ice scoop. Like, can you even buy that? An ice scoop? An ice scoop. Would you just use an ice cream scoop? No, too that big. That would work. Too big. Oh, yeah, I guess too big, yeah. yeah. A flat stretcher, rope and restraints, forceps, a hacksaw, chloroform and syringes. The broken garrote that Gemma tried to murder Aaron with was also seized. That's French for a strangle string. It is. It was described as having two blue plastic handles secured onto a reasonably stiff metal wire link, but not well because it broke. Yeah. That's what happens when you buy stuff off Wish. Yeah. (laughs) I really want Wish to be one of our sponsors. You know this one, this ad popped up the other day for plastic see-through brassiere. It's like plastic... Um, see-through plastic. Yeah, it keeps your titties fresh. Yeah, yeah. And you can just see them all squished up in there. (laughs) (laughs) Did you get one? Absolutely. (laughs) I can't wait till it arrives. Is it for you to wear in the summer? Yes. With with your jorts and your collots? That's right. God only knows what else you'll be onto by then. yeah, I'm a merman. (laughs) Hey, baby. (laughs) Look at my squashed up titties. Yeah. Ooh, hairy squashed up titties, my favourite. Sorry, back to the story. Um, yeah, it's yes. just a very strange aside, even <laughs> it really for us, was, man. Yeah. Jesus. There was a large square of carpet cut from the lounge room floor in what police say was an attempt to remove bloodstains as well. Then, in a bizarre twist, because this story needs more of those, police found CCTV evidence recorded by Gemma's own home security cameras. 
Anxious that someone might try to steal her sweet collection of six motorcycles, Gemma had installed a motion-sensing CCTV system at four points outside of her house. The footage showed Aaron entering the back door with Gemma and Trudy at around 10am on June 13th, and at 10.30, it filmed Trudy leaving the house and entering again carrying a large knife inside a sheath. The CCTV system had then been switched off. Mm, wisely. Yeah, but like not timely. I mean, no. yeah, that's good for it's good for everyone who's like not an evil asshole though. Mm. I'm glad it the happened. rest of us. Yeah. yeah, it's good for the rest of us, just not good for these goblins. Aaron's body was found buried in the backyard under the red tiles and cement. He was wrapped in a tarpaulin, and his face was covered in cling film in what prosecutors said was an amateurish attempt to conceal the crime. Following their arrest, the women turned on each other and accused the other of the murder. That's what goblins do. Yeah, that's what most crims do. Gemma said she was sleeping when Trudy murdered Aaron in a BDSM training session gone wrong. Bullshit. Uh, Trudy admitted to witnessing Gemma kill Aaron and helping to conceal the crime, but said she played no part in committing the senseless killing. You set him up, woman. You're guilty. Both women were charged with Aaron Payich's murder. During the five-week trial, Gemma spent five days on the stand, probably enjoying every second of it, while Trudy opted not to testify. Gemma claimed the murder-themed exchanges between she and Trudy were only role-playing for a new book. This terrible Mart is dumb as dog shit, but she thinks she's the smartest guy in the room. Cops must love that. It makes their job so much easier. Indeed. Yeah. Here's another example of how smart she is. Woolworths employees Matthew Stray and Jeffrey Burling gave evidence at the trial. Gemma was actually Matthew's supervisor at Woolworths. Okay. Matthew testified about a conversation he had with her five days after Aaron's murder. He said Gemma told him, I did it. I killed someone. We were working at the time. It was in the supermarket, aisle four, he said. Yeah, fuck with on aisle four. Yeah, big time. Fuck with on aisle four, fuck with on aisle four. Yeah, I'd like a price check on a heinous goblin, aisle four. She told him, I had to get Trudy to hold him down. I put the wire around his neck and tried to use it and it broke. Matthew also said Gemma showed him a photo of a dumb-looking medieval jester, which she said she was planning to get as a tattoo. She said it was like a symbol to represent the significance of killing someone. He testified that she said the police were so dumb they were never going to catch her and that she sounded super pumped when she talked about the murder. Who's the dumb one now, huh? Mm. Is it you? No. Probably. Is it me? Probably. No, her. Her? Yeah. Come on. I get it now. She's fucked. He recounted that they had another conversation where Gemma actually showed him a picture of Aaron. Like, this is the guy I killed. How awesome. He said, I still could not quite fathom the situation. I said to her, if this is real and I went to the police, you'd be in big trouble. She replied, yeah, I know, 25 to life. Matthew testified Gemma then gave more details about the killing, telling him that when the wire broke, she grabbed a knife and stabbed him. She said it went in a long way and made a cracking sound when it went into his chest. Uh, He said when he suggested he might have to go to the police, she said that if he did this, uh, she'd have to make the problem go away. Matthew told the court he later received a series of text messages from Gemma apologising, describing herself as a good storyteller, saying it was pretend and that nothing really happened. Another co-worker, Jeffrey Burling, testified that Gemma told him she wanted to be a serial killer and she wanted to leave her mark. 
The court was also given details of YouTube searches done in March on a mobile phone belonging to Trudy, in which the words flesh wounds, knife slash wounds and lacerations were entered. Those are pretty lame Google searches, Trudy. Yeah. Bovine What what would yours be? Um, Um, Elephant titties. um, Superhero dog costumes. Yeah. Hey! Um, uh, hey! Yeah, I nailed mm, that one, didn't biz- I? Bizarre murders involving coffee. Really? Something like that. Didn't your dog drink your coffee this morning? She did. She had a she stuck a snout in there and had a few good licks. <laughs> well, you know, first thing in the morning. You yeah, know, dog, she was sleepy. Dogs need a little bit of a boost in, in at the start of the day, just like all the rest of us. Yeah, apparently it's very bad for them, but she was fine afterwards. Yeah, she would have kept going if I hadn't stopped her, though. I bet those lawyer dogs, those um, oh, they drink schnauzers. Yeah. Dash yeah. hounds. Dash hounds. That's, yeah. that's, that's our legal team. They represent bloody murder. <laughs> Anytime you see a sausage dog, that, that's our lawyer. That's right. It took the jury just two and a half hours to find both women guilty. And most of that time was figuring out what they were going to have for lunch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They argued about Chinese. And, um, and, and they're like, oh, it's a bit greasy. And then someone else was like, you know, let's get Nando's. And someone else was like, but I'm sick of chicken. Yeah. And by the way, why do you reckon guilty? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Psychological reports prepared for the court reveal Gemma meets the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. She's sadistic and overestimates her abilities. Ain't that the truth? Trudy's attributes, including a callous nature, irresponsibility and chaotic traits, could be characterised as psychopathy, Justice Hall told the court as he summarised a psychiatric report given to him before sentencing. Gemma has maintained that she was autistic, but Justice Hall said there was fuck all evidence to support that. Really? He cast? No. Good. <laughs> Fuck all y'all, said Justice Hall. Yeah, yeah, he said, fuck that shit. Yeah, shut up, Goblin. You're doomed. They were both given a maximum sentence of life in prison with a non-parole period of 28 years. Oh, so she was wrong about 25 years to life. She's wrong about a lot of things. Yeah, I get that. At Aaron Payich's memorial service, attended by hundreds of people in Rockingham, he was remembered as a gentle soul with a pure heart. His father described him by saying he was a great person, very kind, very generous, and he loved everyone. Ah, Barney, he sounds exactly like the kind of person the world needs more of. Yeah. Yeah, he really does. So sad. Yeah. So Trudy Lennon was being held in Western Australia's Bandy Up Women's Prison. On New Year's Day this year, a fellow inmate poured two litres of boiling water down Trudy's back because she was disgusted with the callous way Trudy and Gemma had murdered Aaron. Trudy had been waiting in line for medication when the woman grabbed the freshly boiled kettle and emptied it over her back. Mm, That's the pot calling the kettle crap. Guards jumped in and gave her emergency first aid before she was transported to hospital in an ambulance with severe burns to 21% of her body. Mm, That's going to hurt. That's going to hurt real bad. Aaron's parents, Keith and Veronica, said karma played a role in her attack and added, we have no sympathy for her. Well, why the hell would you? Let me think about that. Nah, my sympathy cupboard is bare. Yeah. Mm. The end. The end. Finn. Mm-hmm. Uh, hell of a story. Yeah. Fucking. What a waste. Poor, yeah. poor little Aaron. What a short and uh, sad life he had. Yeah, and what a terrible end. He was really excited about hanging out with his little mate and playing computer games. 
Yeah. Well, I think uh, it's time for something else. And it might be True Crime Nerd Time. <gasps> True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. I love True Crime. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, documentary, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. A birthmark that looks like Pogo the Clown. Are you itchy, Tara? <laughs> Always. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. But importantly... Um, it needs to be a little bit fleshed out, doesn't it? Yeah, you need about 200 words. Uh, look, a few people have sent in, this is a good idea for a, a true crime nerd time, and mm-hmm. they sent us the idea, but don't write it. We, we're not going to write it. We want you to write it. We want to hear your opinions. Yeah, and, what you found fascinating and compelling and like what really like, drew you to it. That's right. Yeah, we want that's you what to, we want. We want you to be a part of this podcast. Yeah. So we've got another one here from Ari from Murder Under the Midnight Sun. She's pretty much running this segment at the moment, isn't well, she? Well, she's had a couple. Well, know. she's an awesome true crime nerd. That's that's what got us talking in the first place. Well, that's right. And she's a good writer as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read it. And this is what she says. Do it. So this is what Ari writes. It's about The Good Nurse by Charles Graeber. Myself and most true crime nerds seem to be less interested in medical serial killers I think because there's no exciting knifings, just some boring-ass poisonings. Damn straight. But this book about serial killer nurse Charles Cullen was so well-written that it's a real page-turner. Cullen is one of those guy-next-door type of serial killers and definitely does not fit the stereotype. You also get to read about the stunning treatment of him by various hospitals who transfer him to other hospitals even after suspecting he causes the death of many patients. What the hell? It will make you rage like Cambo. And as he is possibly linked to hundreds of murders, he's the most prolific serial killer that isn't a household name. You will love this book, even if you find Poison boring. Thanks, Ari. Yeah, what was the name of the book again? It's called The Good Nurse. Right, cool. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It really does. So Barney, I believe you were about to tell us all a story about murder. What is a murder but the killing of another human being, Master Wayne? Okay, please tell me you are doing it all in Michael Caine. No, I won't be. Okay. It's probably just as well. She was only 16 years old. She was only 16 years old. Early on the morning of January 25th, 2010, a freight train driver passing Mount Murray in New South Wales' Southern Highlands noticed a burning car. And what was inside this burning car? Well, teeth and a cheekbone discovered inside the charred early 90s Mazda 626 were later identified as belonging to 35-year-old Matthew Digby from Wollongong. Digby had recently moved to the area from Cronulla. His body was so badly burned that investigators were initially unable to establish a cause of death. Oh, my God. His remains were in the front passenger seat. 
Matthew Digby had been tied up in chains, attacked with an angle grinder, then strangled to death, all because he was suspected of stealing a necklace. I'm guessing the police didn't do that. Your guess would be correct. Mm-hmm. And in a tragic twist, the man whose charred body was found in the burned-out car didn't steal the bling. Oh, man. One phone call could have prevented Matthew Digby from being beaten, burned and strangled to death. And here's how it went down, Tara. Oh. In mid-January 2010, the house of Lauren Bacheldore, that is her real name, Ooh. was burgled and various items of property were stolen. Amongst those items, and of particular significance, was a fancy nine-carat solid gold necklace. A sweet coin collection belonging to her long-standing friend Richard Walsh was also stolen. Coin collections? They can be worth quite a bit, hey? Yeah, Krugerrands, doubloons. Oh, well, that just sounds like a pirate's treasure chest. Arr. Rather than do what any normal person would do and pick up the phone and report the theft to the police, Lauren and Richard decided to take the law into their own hands and investigate the crime themselves. Is it because they fancy themselves as the equaliser or the punisher? Or maybe they just didn't like cops? Who knows what was going through these dickheads' minds? Yeah, just general dickheady stuff, just dicks. A few days later, they trawled the local pawn shops in their area to look for their missing property. On the afternoon of January 18th, Lauren visited a second-hand dealer in Wollongong and found her necklace that had been pinched from her home. She also managed to extract information from the sales clerk about who had pawned it. Matthew Digby had sold it to the second-hand dealer earlier that day, and now his days were numbered. Digby had hocked the $2,000 necklace to the pawn shop for the princely sum of $250. Oh man, your life's got to be worth more than that. How that item came to be in the possession of Digby is not entirely clear. Later in court, there was some evidence presented that he had told others that he had been given the necklace by a sex worker. What? Which is strange, as that's not how exchanges with sex workers usually play out, do they, Tara? No, not at all. Like, were they kind of like, oh, wow, here's a necklace. You were amazing. Oh, baby, you were fantastic. No charge. Here, have this necklace. (laughs) Yeah, it's not really ringing true, is it? It certainly isn't. On the evening of January 18th, Lauren Richard and two friends, let's call them Peter and Paul. Oh, very biblical. All went to Matthew Digby's house to confront him about the robbery and try to recover the rest of their lost property. Paul was originally charged with the murder of Matthew Digby. However, the charge was withdrawn and Paul was granted immunity by the Attorney General in respect of evidence given at the trial. In other words, he threw his friends under the bus to save his own sorry ass. Well, that sounds familiar. At the time of the arrival of Lauren and her posse at the Digby house, the only person there was Michael Small, a friend of Digby's. Lauren asked for Digby and was told by Small he wasn't in, so she asked Small to phone him. Small was not big (laughs) and was intimidated by this unusual gang of thugs, so he did what they asked, following which Lauren spoke with Digby. After Richard closed the blinds, the gang started searching the premises. Whilst tossing the place, Richard said to Small, we've got something to sort out with Matthew. On January 20th, the necklace was redeemed by Digby from the pawn shop and returned to Lauren. But what of the coin collection and other items, Lauren demanded? That's a fair question. Well, yeah, it does sound like he's involved. Digby said he did not know, but Richard and Lauren didn't believe him. So over the next few days, they continually phoned him and told him he'd better find out. Eventually, they all agreed to a meeting at Beaton Park at about 12.30am on January 23, where Digby had promised to reveal the location of their stolen items. 
Well, this is all quite cloak and dagger, isn't it? It is, isn't it? There was some evidence at the later trial about the presence of a fourth person, Stacey Callahan. Callahan had provided a statement to the police about this meeting, but only a few days later she changed her statement, which contradicted what she had originally told police. Although she was issued with a subpoena to give evidence at the trial, she did not respond to that subpoena. Oh, is that all it takes? Apparently you can just ignore them and oh, go away. and they, they just disappear. Oh, like no. like um, dental work, like when you need a filling. If you ignore that, it goes away. Yeah, yeah, teeth grow back, you know. Yeah, I know. Oh. Although there is no dispute that a meeting had taken place at Beaton Park, there is significant dispute about what happened next. Well, there would be. Richard Walsh says, having met Digby in the park, he had offered him drugs, some weed and ice in return for information about the robbery, an offer which Digby accepted. Richard said that Digby had voluntarily left Beaton Park with him. Oh, I don't know. I mean, you never go with an iced-up angry man missing his coin collection to a second location. Surely everyone knows that. Another story came from Bert Bertson Jr. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's, that's not his real name. Okay. I just made that name up. Right, okay, good. But I have to protect his identity. Yeah. yeah was, was it really Bert Burtson Sr. and you just changed Shh. it slightly? Oh, whoops. Anyway, Bert Burtson Jr., <laughs> who had shared a cell with Richard whilst on remand for armed robbery. Bert Burtson Jr. alleges that Richard was responsible for physically detaining Digby at the park, punching him and dragging him back to the car and then forcibly taking him to a second location. What is not in dispute is they all went to Paul's house, that's the friend of Richard, Mm -hmm. namely his garage where Digby met his demise. So what happened in that garage, you ask, Tara? I feel like it was tortury and, like, so I kind of want to know and I kind of don't want to know. The Crown's principal case of trial was Richard Walsh had intentionally strangled Matthew Digby by placing a chain around his neck and then pulling it from behind. The Crown case was that this act had been done by Richard with the intention to kill Digby. Well, I mean, you don't really do it for fun, do you? Well, that's BDSM. People do that for fun all the time, I guess. Not so hard that people die, usually. No, no. Dying is not usually the the intention. It's not the goal. It's not sexy fun anymore, is it? No. Richard denied that he strangled Digby. He gave evidence that there was an altercation with Digby in the garage in the course of which he was stabbed by Digby with a screwdriver and Digby's death was self-defence. Because Digby's body was ultimately incinerated, there was no medical evidence to establish cause of death, so it was left to the jury to determine the circumstances of his demise by considering the testimony of the three principal witnesses, namely Paul, Bert Bertson Jr. and Richard Walsh. Right, okay, and they all sound like very trustworthy people, don't they? They're not. Yeah, I know. So what they say, I mean, hard to know what the truth is. That's right. This is what Paul said. Paul gave evidence that Richard arrived at his home and that having parked the vehicle in the downstairs garage, he came up into the house and said that he had Digby in the car and was going to speak with him to find out what he knows and where things are. Paul also gave evidence that Richard then went back down to the garage before returning upstairs and said that Digby had told him everything he needed to know and where everything was. Now, I just want to give you this, Tara, because I want you to do the prosecutor here. Oh, okay, prosecutor. So kind of fancy, maybe like peering over the top of my glasses kind of voice? Yeah, I want you to be the chocolate prostitutor. (laughs) Excellent. I'm willing to prostitute all the chocolate. So Richard then asked Paul for a drink to take down to Digby. Here's a transcript from the trial, 
Tara, can you do the chocolate prosecutor voice? Okay, so that means the crown prosecutor, right? For yes. people not in the know. Okay, yes. here we go. So after that conversation, did you stay in the house or did you leave and go somewhere else? Just yes or no? Nah, 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 stayed in the house. Was there any further conversation about Mr Digby? Nah, only that Richard was going to go downstairs, let him out of the car, have a drink, stretch his legs. The drinks that you poured, what were they? Cordial. Cold, just cold cordial. With what? It wasn't just cordial. Nah, like, yep, made up cordial like water in yeah. What's the next thing that occurred after he's left and gone down with the drinks? Well, Richard had gone downstairs and I've locked the top internal door like the top of the garage steps. And then there was a bit of banging down in the garage and I'd banged on my bedroom floor, which was above the garage, as in to say, be quiet sort of thing, you'll wake the kids. And then I heard footsteps come back up the garage steps. Where was Lauren at this point? She'd left. Now, at what point had she left? More or less when Richard was going back downstairs. So was that before or after you poured the drinks? After. So you hear this banging sound. Can you be any more precise as to what it sounded like? A car door opening and shutting, more like thudding bangs, yeah. That sound that you described as a car door opening and shutting, is that a sound you heard once or more than once? Nah, I heard a couple of times. So then you hear footsteps in the internal staircase? Yeah, footsteps coming fast, sort of like running up the steps. Did you hear any sound other than the footsteps? Nah, not until Richard banged on a door and said, let me in, babe. What did you do? Unlocked the door and opened it. Okay, and what did you see when you opened it? Richard sort of pushed past me and said, the prick nearly got me. What did he do? He ran into the bedroom and hopped in the shower. Did he say anything else about what... He said he had blood all over him. As far as him getting in the shower was concerned, what's the next thing that happened after he entered the shower? He got out, I presume. Yeah, he got out of the shower and got a plastic bag and put his clothes that he was wearing and put them in the plastic bag. Bert Bertson Jr. gave evidence of a conversation with Richard whilst they were both in custody. Here's what Bert testified. And can you do the Bert Bertson Jr. voice for me too, please, Tara? <laughs> I would love to. I would love to. Oh, he told me he'd gone upstairs. He got himself a drink and he came back down. Mr. Digby was still chained up in the back of the car. Richard then told me he'd slapped him around a little bit to wake him up and asked him a few questions in regard to money that was taken. Richard told me Digby had told him to fuck off and wasn't going to tell him anything. At that point, Richard told me he'd done a few things to try and get Mr. Digby to talk. He wasn't saying anything, and he said Digby said, if you don't let me go, I'm going to come back and kill your missus and your kids. And he said, well, now you said that, I can't let you go. Richard had then asked Digby what he wanted for his last drink. Digby was, Richard told me, was very upset, and he said, don't do this. He said he wanted a water. Richard walked upstairs to get him a glass of water. He came back downstairs and seen Digby had one hand free. By this time, Richard was getting a little angry and agitated. He said he ran over to the car and put one hand on the side door, one hand on the roof, and was just like kicking him in the face. And how fucking dare you try to get away? It knocked him out then. Richard knocked out Digby. He climbed in the back of the station wagon, got the dog chain, 
put it around Digby's neck. He's put his feet on the back seat of the car and he's pulled back. He said he held the chain around his neck for about four minutes till he stopped moving. He said he had cracks in Digby's neck and, and he held it there until he stopped moving. Bert also stated that an angle grinder had been sunk into Digby's leg to elicit information. Oh, damn. According to facts tendered to court, Lauren and Richard smoked the drug ice before he went back down into the garage to speak to Matt and try and find out what he knows. Ice is always involved. Now, Richard claimed in his trial that Digby had willingly accompanied him to the house and waited in the car while he fetched methamphetamine and cannabis for them to share. When he returned, he said he caught Digby attempting to break into the glove compartment with a screwdriver, which he then stabbed him in the hand with. Oh, that doesn't sound true, does it? Come on. Richard also testified he tried to subdue Digby with a guillotine headlock, which is when he claims he died. The jury believed none of this horseshit. Oh, good, because, like, come on. In the end, two people were convicted for their role in the death of 35-year-old Matthew Digby. 23-year-old Richard James Walsh was convicted and sentenced to 28 years for the kidnap and murder of the Wollongong man. Lauren May Batchelor, 34, was convicted of murder and kidnap at this trial, but her offences were later downgraded to take and detaining a person in company and being an accessory after the fact. Originally given a 24-year sentence, it was reduced later on appeal to five years. Ooh, I'm sure that was upsetting for Digby's family. Yeah, she really was the catalyst yeah, of this I mean, whole thing, this whole on. shit show, yeah. I know she didn't do it, but she certainly didn't say no to it. Justice Jeffrey Ballou said that while he didn't agree with the Crown's submission that Digby was strangled by Walsh, he was satisfied that the victim died while being detained in the garage as a result of a deliberate act by Richard. Yeah. One can only imagine the fear by which the deceased would have been beset in the final hours of his life, Justice Ballou said. Lauren's role in the incident was less serious, he stated. She did, however, assist in other ways, including arranging the disposal of a bag containing the clothes worn by Richard Walsh at the time he set a light to the vehicle. The whole Surrey incident could have been avoided, said Justice Ballou, if Lauren had just called the police when the jury was originally stolen. Exactly. You can still do your own sleuthing and check out pawn shops and get information, but I mean... I feel like maybe they're drug dealers or something. Like something was in there that they didn't uh, want taken. Like yeah. it seems like there's some extra layer of criminality for them to act like mm. this, right? Well, uh, Matthew Digby's grief-stricken father, John, said, We live with the horror of Matt's death every day. To lose a child is heartbreaking, but to know the circumstances in which he was killed is something that plays on our minds over and over. It really would. It really would. And especially since, because they can't fully figure out the cause of death because of how, how burnt up he was, like, the not knowing, and then you're just going to imagine everything. Postscript, Tara. Mm. A couple of years later, after that uh, trial, they found the robbers. <gasps> the real robbers? Yeah, there were a gang of guys. They found uh, the coins under a kitchen sink when they raided it on a, on a drug raid, and um, those guys were charged with the burglary. And um, they knew Matthew Digby. They'd actually given the necklace to him. Do you think he was trying to get them to give the coins back so that he, you know, could deal with these criminal people that were, like, pressuring him? Yeah. Well, Matthew Digby apparently didn't give up his mates. Damn. I re reckon, considering I the have. alternative, I might have. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. All that. And he didn't even do it. I'm sure you have questions about Bert Burtson Jr. too. 
I um, think he got a few years taken off his sentence for armed robbery for helping because the police. Because he, yeah, he, he, he told them everything he knew. Yeah, he ratted. I wonder why we're not allowed to know his real name. Probably so we'll make up a fake better one. Because because he, you know, dogging on another prisoner. Oh, that'll get you. That'll get you killed. That'll get you shanked Quick in the shower. Smart. Yeah. Yeah. Far out. God. Mm. So there you go. Hey, uh, Tara, I've got a question for you now. Really? What is Aussie as? Aussie as a tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I really would. I'd like to thank the wonderful Erica Lil Biddy for bringing this Aussie as to my attention. Ah, the snake and spider queen herself. Indeed. Indubitably. Old school fam bam. Late on a recent Monday night in the Adelaide suburb of Salisbury East, three dumbass teenagers were cruising around in one of their mum's cars. Oh, a Datsun Corvina? <laughs> Probably. Listening to shitty music full bore, eating Maccas, pounding Red Bulls and throwing eggs at anyone unfortunate enough to cross their path. Oh, no. When they say youth is wasted on the young, this is exactly what they're talking about. And when they say eggs are wasted on the young... Well, it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> they really are. Have you ever been, like, egged in the street, Barney? Well, my house got egged once. Remember that old house I lived in in Carlton? Yeah, Nicholson Street. Those yeah, eggs yeah. just stayed there the those, whole time you were there. The whole stains of those eggs was on the front of that house for years afterwards. I know. Yeah. I don't think you actually cleaned them off. No, I didn't. It was probably just like, don't bother egging my house. There's it's been, already eggs. It's been egged. Yeah, <laughs> pre-egged for your pleasure. Uh, I have been egged. It was a drive-by egging. It was over a decade ago. I was just walking down the street, concentrating on truck and right, listening to music through outside-the-ear headphones when they struck. The egg bounced off the side of my headphones, though, so it was kind of a waste. Still annoying and punchable, though. Like, I was like, ah, you little fuckers, I'm going to chase down your car and, like, grab onto the back and get dragged along. And No, I didn't do any of that, but no, I, I shook that. my fist and I went, get uh, off my lawn. I will end you. Yeah, that's pretty much how I felt about it. So these dickheads on wheels were throwing eggs at other cars too the other night because road accidents are hilarious, I guess. Anyway, these anti-omelette piss ants messed with the wrong dude. Oh, do tell. A man followed the three teenagers, hell-bent on revenge, after they threw eggs at his vehicle. Police were called to an incident on Birch Avenue in Salisbury East just after 11.30pm on a recent Monday night. The three terrified, numb-nutted teenagers told cops their car had been chased and rammed by another vehicle. South Australian Senior Constable Mick Abbott said that the man then broke the window of the teenager's car and threatened them with a gun. Oh, fuck. <laughs> he uh, robbed them of their mobile phones and wallets, uh, he said. Uh, fortunately, there were no serious injuries. Police are still looking for the man who was driving a white Toyota Hilux ute. No registration of the vehicle was obtained. The suspect is described as wearing a red baseball cap and a sort of flannelette shirt, Senior Constable Abbott said. That could be anybody. Um, yeah, the teenagers didn't get the plate number because they were too busy shitting their Buzz Lightyear undies in the face of this attack. <laughs> Police said it was obvious the incident was linked to the teenagers throwing exit cars in the area earlier. Elizabeth Police investigating the incident don't believe it is random. Senior Constable Abbott said. 
So that obviously escalated very quickly and this man took umbrage to his car being hit by eggs. Umbridge. So much so that he robbed them at gunpoint and he has their wallets and phones. So he probably knows where they live now. Well, that's some umbridge, all right, isn't it? That's some serious umbridge. So this is why randomly egging strangers is a fucking terrible idea. I don't like even beeping people the other day. I was, I was, someone was beeping this car in front of me. The car behind me was beeping it. Mm -hmm. And this guy got out of his car and came out to me. He goes, what are you beeping at, you fucking idiot? And I go, let's see, it's a guy behind me beeping. And he went, oh, and I said, you're a dickhead. And, and. And, and then he shot you in the head. And then he put a screwdriver in my temple. Yeah. So, and, I, and I'm dead and I'm a ghost. Yeah. So don't beep people. No, no, beeping's bad. And egging is even worse. Yeah, no, that was a cracker. So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. So I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And we just did some bloody murder. Don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast, a.k.a. The Fam Bam. Follow us on Twitter and Snapshit and Insta. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes, and some sweet-ass merchandise. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. So, Bert Burtz and uh, Junior, you yep. were channeling a voice there. I was. Do you tell want to know who it was? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you Please know I can only me. do it when I'm channeling someone. Okay, so my friend, uh, like 12 years ago, had a horrible hen's night on a boat, so you couldn't get off it. Oh, no. You were stuck. And there were all these horrible guys working there, and they, like, they, they'd they put fake tattoos on your boobs, and they just thought they were amazing. You could buy the shirt off their back. Ugh. And they were just so gross and I never made eye contact with any of them. And it cost like a lot of money and the only drink you got was like a, a little paper cup full of crap or you could buy Bacardi Breezes. Uh, but I wanted to get off so bad. I was thinking about jumping in. It was winter. I was willing to swim across the river, but I was wearing some really nice like high boots and I didn't want to lose them. Oh, that ruined them. Yeah, but the boat actually docked to let on the male strippers. And so when I saw it docking, I, I finally made eye contact with one of these assholes and I went to him like, oh, hey, the boat's docking. Can I get off now? And he went to me, oh, why would you want to get off? And I was like, because I'm sick. I'm really sick. Because you're shit. You're shit. I hate everyone else here. This is the worst fucking thing I've ever done. Um, And yeah, I got to run away. 
<laughs> yeah, before oh. getting teabagged by some douchebag with no body hair. Um, but yeah, it was so shit. It was like one of the worst nights of my life. Oh. I even had a cold. I was actually thinking I would pay $200 to be let off. Oh. I decided I had like this auction going in my head about how much I would pay to just get out of this. <laughs> and all the women were really like into these horrible guys who were the waiters. And I, it made me feel really bad for being female. Oh. I was just like, oh, I'm not part of this. Why do you want to get off? Because you're shit and this mm. is shit. Why would you want to get off this is like the best fucking place on earth no it's not it's just oh, clearly it isn't i hate you bert bertson jr and all of your faux stripper friends <laughs> i don't want to buy this shirt off your back and i'm not getting a boob tattoo <laughs> good oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, bunny out smoke bomb <laughs> oh, cool. okay, that did work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.